Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, tens of thousands of Palestinians are continuing to stream into Rafah City, that's near the Egyptian border, as they try to escape the intense fighting in southern Gaza. Israel military, Israel's military is focusing its assault on the southern Gaza's main city, Khan Yunus, where civilians were originally told to flee to uh, back at the start of the Hamas-Israel conflict. Israel now describes the city as the heart of Hamas terror as it tries to close in on the Hamas chief Yaha Sinwar. The United Nations chief is warning of a total humanitarian collapse in Gaza as the conflict reaches the two-month mark. In a video address, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his forces had surrounded the Hamas leader's home. Yesterday I said that our forces could reach anywhere in the Gaza Strip. Today they are encircling Sinwar's house. His house may not be his fortress and he can escape, but it's only a matter of time before we get him. There's still a lot of pressure, though, on just how Israel conducts its operations. It's announced what it called a minimal increase in fuel supplies to Gaza, but the UN's relief chief, Martin Griffith, says that's still not enough. We do not have a humanitarian operation in southern Gaza that can be called by that name anymore. That the pace of the military assault in southern Gaza is a repeat of the assault in northern Gaza, that it has made no place safe for civilians in southern Gaza, which had been a cornerstone of the humanitarian plan to protect civilians and thus to provide aid to them. But without places of safety, that plan is in tatters. Yesterday, Israel's Foreign Minister Eli Cohen levelled harsh criticism towards UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres after he invoked a rare clause in the UN Charter to call for an immediate ceasefire. Earlier, I spoke to our correspondent in Tel Aviv, Sarah Coates, who says the humanitarian situation is deteriorating. 80% of the population inside the Gaza Strip, they are now internally displaced. Uh, We're talking here about, you know, around 1.9 million people moved down to the south and it's getting cold here. Winter's drawing in and these people have simply nowhere safe to shelter and no dry or warm place to stay. Yeah, I see the UN saying the humanitarian efforts is essentially so depleted it can no longer really be called a humanitarian effort. Exactly. These aid groups say that They can't even carry out their work simply because there's no means for them to do that. We're talking here uh, an acute lack of fuel. Uh, This is something today that Israel did address. uh, It said that it would allow uh, the minimum amount of fuel in to try and sort of kickstart these humanitarian operations again. But uh, we did have uh, some news in in the last hour or so that the Karem Shalom crossing This is a tri-border crossing with Egypt, Israel and Gaza. Uh, And the the United States and also a number of other international players, they've been calling on Israel for around a month now to open this crossing, to let more aid trucks through. This is because the Karem Shalom is actually a truck crossing, a vehicle crossing, but the Rafa crossing, which is that crossing that all of this aid has been getting through until now, it's actually built as a, as a footpath, a pedestrian crossing, so it's really not built for these huge loads of trucks to come through. 
Well, Israel today has said that it will open the Karem Shalom, although not for the trucks to actually pass through. This is this will be open so that officials can actually inspect what is on those trucks before they are then sent back to the rougher crossing. So look, it is something, but nowhere near enough right now. On the uh, military front, Israeli forces saying they've surrounded the home of Hamas's political wing leader in Gaza. Uh, what have they found there? Is he actually there and who is he? That's right. Well, look, this is 61-year-old Yaya Sinwa. He is the most wanted man in Israel. Israeli officials have been saying for years that they want to hunt him down and kill him. Uh, He's certainly not believed to be hanging out at home. He's believed to be uh, in these underground bunkers that run right underneath the Gaza Strip. But yes, they said they have surrounded his home. Uh, And look, he's very well accustomed with the way Israel operates. He's He was incarcerated in Israeli jails for more than 20 years. He speaks Hebrew extremely well, extremely fluently, probably better than most Israelis. Uh, And so he really knows the system. So he's certainly going to be a hard one to catch. But Israel is vowing that it will hunt him down and kill him. And his capture or killing would be seen really as a major prize here. They they blame him for as being part of the uh, organisation of the Mm -hmm. October 7 attacks, don't they? That's right. Israel says that he is uh, one of the key figures that orchestrated these attacks. And look, we do need to remember, he was actually released from jail here in Israel back in 2011. You might remember there was uh, a soldier, uh, Shalit, he was captured in 2006. He was taken from Israel, taken over the border into Gaza. And it was 2011 that there was a prisoner swap deal brokered. So this soldier was released, one single soldier was released Uh, for more than a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. And one of those prisoners that was let out of jail was Yahya Sinwa. So right now, the Israeli Prime Minister, he's really copying it on all fronts also uh, for releasing Yahya Sinwa back then, uh, the Israeli establishment, uh, saying, you know, that how could this ever have happened? If this hadn't have happened, then maybe the October 7 massacre wouldn't have happened. So, look, certainly a lot of pressure right around uh, the region. Back home, a senior Labour MP has gone a step too far for his party in labelling Israel's actions in Gaza genocide. Damien O'Connor was one of a number of opposition MPs dismayed at the government's refusal to call for an immediate ceasefire. Instead, the coalition passed a motion calling for all parties in the region to take urgent steps towards establishing a ceasefire. Here is our political reporter, Giles Dexter. Normal service has resumed at Parliament, kicking off with a topic anything but normal. Before the first question time of the new term, the House passed a motion calling for steps to be taken towards a ceasefire in Gaza. It was a passionate debate. I wonder how many more thousands of innocent people we could have saved if the world had applied that pressure and that call many, many, many weeks ago. Even elected members of the New Zealand Parliament have felt free to use Hamas slogans like from the river to the sea, which if you take Hamas seriously, and we should, do mean the eradication of Israel and its people. We're seeing the bombing of hospitals. We're seeing the bombing of homes, refugee camps, schools, churches, for goodness sake. That's not self-defence. 
While the motion passed, opposition parties questioned why it wasn't a call for an immediate ceasefire, and wanted the government to go further. And in an emotional speech, Labour's associate foreign affairs spokesperson Damien O'Connor ended up going further than his own party's position. No person with any ounce of moral courage can see this as anything but horrific. Nothing more than a genocide. While the Greens and Te Pāti Māori have, for weeks, been describing what's happening in Gaza genocide, Damien O'Connor's colleague Phil Twyford, whose amendment calling for a two-state solution was adopted, says it's not Labour's phrasing. Well, there's a lot of views on that, and、um, certainly a lot of people who believe it is. But there is a big body of、uh, international law. Uh, that has very strict definitions and qualifications about the use of the word genocide, and that's the reason, it, by and large, most governments are very cautious about using the word. The foreign affairs minister, who spoke with his Israeli opposite number last night, wants to see the evidence. Winston Peters says such a definition would be up to a judicial body like the International Criminal Court. When we have seen international bodies charged with、uh, conclusions that might arise from such an investigation. Coming to those conclusions, and not beforehand by making allegations without again laying out the factual evidence. Labour leader Chris Hipkins acknowledged Damien O'Connor's passion for the issue and says he respects the emotion and feelings shown during the debate. But he says it's up to the relevant international bodies to determine whether Israel's actions breach international law. The Greens' foreign affairs spokesperson Goris Gutterman says there's no reason to wait. The significance of、um, the, the word genocide is that the Genocide Convention imposes an obligation on us to prevent genocide. We don't have to wait to make sure that that's what it is, as Winston Peters suggests. We have an obligation to act the minute there's any evidence that a genocide might occur. The prime minister is defending why the government is not calling for an immediate ceasefire. Both sides actually need to be able to do so,、uh, and that means that they both have to agree to be able to put down their arms. They both have to actually agree to cease fighting across the whole area of the conflict in Gaza and in Israel. And both parties actually need to commit to a political process and a peace process to resolve their differences. But the opposition says that sounds like the government's waiting for there to be a ceasefire before it calls for one. Auckland Council has comprehensively rejected the previous Labor government's proposal for transport tunnels under, underneath the Waitemata Harbour. The council's transport committee voted against the proposal a day after a report showed it would cost. Fifty-six billion dollars, and didn't have the support of the Ministry of Transport or Auckland Transport. Now it's back to the drawing board to find less costly plans for a second crossing. North Shore Ward Councillor Chris Darby seconded Mayor Wayne Brown's opposition to the plan, and joins us now.、Uh, kia ora, good morning, Chris.、Uh, yes, morning, as I say, back to the drawing board. It's、uh, another delay, is it, for Aucklanders? Uh, yeah, look at delay on this project, but look, it's at the indicative business case.、Uh, it's moving towards the, the full business case, and、um, but look, we've got time to do this. It's become a, a bigger than big Ben Hur sort of mega project, and it's coming in at a whopping fifty-six、uh, billion dollars at the moment. But we've got to keep in mind that、uh, that is.、Um, A project that stretches out over thirty, forty years and、um, doesn't just range over the harbour; it, it, it actually extends from the Wynyard Quarter all the way through to Albany.、Um, but that's in the in the twenty sixties. What's an appropriate figure? 
Um, oh, look, I, I, I figure considerably less than that. Maybe it's not so much the figure. It's actually about the value that you're getting out of that figure. And there's a, a significant affordability issue, of course. But the value proposition is uh, very, very weak as it's seen at the moment. I mean, this is a mega project that's had a lot of uh, lead-in time. Uh, Auckland Council has expressed concerns about the the way this project was developing. But let's just, uh, maybe if you've got time, Corin, it is important to unpack that this is a, a project over a very long period, and it is not just in the vicinity of the harbour. Uh, it is a... Uh, one of the problems that we identify is that it, it has... Um, six additional um, traffic lanes under the harbour uh, at the first stage. Um, we would like to see that reversed and look at the public transport priority be, be put forward first. Uh, but this is which a is project. a train. Uh, it could be um, it could be um, a train, but the indications at the moment are that that would be light rail. We would like to see the busway improvements be brought to the, the top of the order, improvements to the busway stations. Um, we would like to see that rapid transit connection be brought uh, ahead of the of the roading connections, keeping in mind that you know, this is 10 lanes of general traffic that's been uh, indicated here. Six new uh, in the road tunnel, four on the bridge, uh, two lanes of busway on the bridge, two lanes of walking and cycling on the Auckland Harbour Bridge, and then two mm. light rail lines in well, a tunnel You say value, well. but no matter how successful you are in getting people to shift from cars into onto public transport and using the buses, etc., which is obviously a, a core goal, your city's growing rapidly. You've got a bridge which you've, you, we know is uh, problematic when the weather gets bad. It can't cope with the traffic at the moment. This is just another delay to dealing with this problem. This is going to drive Aucklanders crazy. Yeah, well, you've got to get the the problem extremely well defined. And how one many times our... has this been? Sorry, how many times has this been looked at? How how much has been spent on consultants over and over again? It feels like we've been yep. talking and about Aucklanders... it for five years. And Aucklanders are asking that question, and the Auckland Council is asking that question. And we have asked those questions. This is a project that is supposedly Waka Katahi working with Auckland Council and Auckland Transport, but we haven't had a lot of governance oversight, and that's one of our criticisms as well. We would like much stronger technical involvement from Auckland Council transport staff and our Auckland, um, our, our Auckland Council staff, but we also need to have that governance oversight, and that's one of our criticisms. This has got legs of its own without that uh, expectation mm. of the mayor and councillors looking at the project, along with the AT board as well, the Auckland Transport Board. Uh, can I come back to the cost? Because obviously, you look, $56 billion on the face of it, as you say, I mean, it sounds horrendous. Uh, but as you say, it's spread out over 10, 20, 30 years, not quite so bad. Whatever project you come up with in, as an alternative to that, it's still going to be multiple it's going to be massive. I mean, it can't be that much less, just to, the, the logistics of it. So is too much being put on that cost? Well, this, the very first stage of this is the road tunnels. The road tunnels are coming in at some $22, 25000000000 billion. I mean, we're, we're looking at a, in a world where we're staring at the issue of climate and we've got to build in climate resilience. Climate resilience doesn't come with more 
road tunnels and more driving. That is not the problem we have at the moment. We've got a massive uptake in public transport. The Northern Busway is reaching its life capacity in the middle 30s. It is about moving people more sustainably. That's where the public demand is. And this project is about face. It puts the road project, the road tunnels first, and the public transport benefits in the second stage, largely. And what is your sense of the new government's enthusiasm for that approach? Is that a general position on the council to go with this, to push public transport under the harbour first? Um, I'm not sure about under the harbour. We're asking for some of the discarded options, like, um, for example, a bridge to take... um, possibly light rail um, and walking and cycling. Um, they come A bridge comes with a much lower operation cost, so you, you're looking at capital at $56 billion, but then you've got to look at so, what it takes to operate over so, the so years. So are you saying now we should go back to the another bridge option? Well, within, within these recommendations, there are some discarded options, and the council is asking for some of these very recently discarded options, these lower-cost alternatives, to be daylighted. Well, they are yeah, not well, adequate. Well, why were those other options discarded, though? Presumably, that, you know, there was so much, so much time looked at these. There was good reasons, presumably, why the bridge option, well, the extra bridge option was discarded. Yes, look, there's always technical evidence, but it's not. there's not a transparency for us on the reasons for the discarding of the bridge options uh, as opposed to the, the tunnel options. So we'd like to have, have some visibility of that. We'd like to prioritise the northern busway enhancements, the new stations. We've got capacity issues at the stations. We'd like to see the eight-kilometre Akaranga to Constellation um, walk and cycleway built earlier. Um, but, and we'd like to see that rapid transit prioritised as well. Just finally, as I say, the cost of this is going to be big no matter what. How do we prevent the situation where whatever councillor there is in the future is going to balk at the cost? They've got ratepayers, they've got to be re-elected. I mean, it's always going to be a problem, isn't it? It is becoming a an even bigger problem because there's very little money in the kitty. And the new government is fast discovering that uh, the, the revenue source for these projects all around the country um, um, are, are pretty much extinguished right now. Um, and that, that is probably one of the biggest challenges they have, uh, the incoming government, is how to, how to revenue source, how to fund these enormous projects and it's not just here in Auckland it's in Wellington of course with uh, let's get Wellington moving and whether you like it or not um, it is an enormous challenge of the outgoing government and it's right in the face of this government sure is thank you for your time Chris Chris Darby there North Shore Ward Councillor uh, the debate the bridge the tunnel the options it is ongoing the new government has instructed uh, Te Pukinga to halt its multi-million dollar transformation, putting hundreds of jobs in limbo. Now, the organisation's chief executive uh, told staff yesterday they were considering what the change meant for recently hired staff and those due to be made redundant next year. The Tertiary Education Union says there is no clear direction going forward. Its National Secretary, Sandra Gray, joins us now. Uh, kia ora, good morning. Good morning. Uh, yes, this uh, halt, if you like, what impact will it have for staff? 
I think what we will see is a lot of staff uh, throughout the network questioning whether they can continue on with uh, being part of the vocational education network. They've had four years of extreme disruption anyway as uh, Tapukinga was created and now they have a government putting out a call to halt Tapukinga but not saying what comes next and that's very, very, very unsettling for staff. They still have jobs though, right? I mean, they've still got to teach students those each individual course is going to continue. There's no sense that they're going to stop. No, absolutely. Uh, next year, these staff will be out teaching and supporting students, working with employers to make sure people have the skills needed to, to go into the workforce. So they have to carry on um, and carry on not knowing what will happen in 2025 or 2026. And that's a really hard place to be. So, you know, there is a very strong commitment to learners from staff in the sector, but their jobs have been really tough. We've seen greater numbers of people leaving the sector over the last few years anyway because of the ongoing change that's going on. Uh, I think that will just get worse despite that commitment to students. How much of this transformation has been done in your view? They have now decided and started to hire people for a completely new structure. We have seen, of course, um, all of the senior management teams at what were the former um, ITOs, the industry training organisations and the polytechnics, all those, of course, were made redundant uh, during this process. So there's been a major, major change in the sector in the last 18 months. Um, And now that apparently is not needed and something new is needed. Uh, We just need the Minister to get on and actually say how she's going to go about making sure that we are looking after learners, Mm. that we are looking after communities. Presumably, there's a lot of branding out there. I mean, I've seen cars. Presumably, there's a lot of uh, tipukinga branding that will have to be changed again. Look, uh, you know, there's a whole range of things that suddenly will have to be changed if the Minister is proposing individual polytechnics again and individual industry training organisations. That includes things like setting up CE offices, and that's a multi-million dollar job. That includes setting up councils and boards to run these, and again, that's a huge amount of money that will need to be poured into the sector, which is actually broke, and that is the problem. There isn't enough money to pooking it doesn't have enough money to run, but individual polytechnics and individual industry training organisations won't have enough money to run was there any Was there any sign that Tipukunga was working in that it was saving money? Because obviously the when they were individual polytechnics and training organisations, there were a lot of deficits, right? And the government was having to step in and help out, or there were, there were issues. So is there a, was, there a, was there signs of improvement? Certainly there was a requirement that uh, within the next five years Tapukinga would break even. But you're absolutely right, Corinne. Prior to Tapukinga being set up, we saw institutions receiving multi-million dollar payouts. Um, and if you look at the balance sheets now, there isn't a single polytechnic that would actually survive um, going back to being on its own as the funding model currently stands. And that's because we know the sector's underfunded. It's been underfunded for a couple of decades and no government has stepped in and fixed that. I mean, that is what National should be addressing, not the structure. Do you think it's realistic that it could go back to each individual polytech and and training organisation? I mean, or would there be some rationalisation here? 
Well, the minister has made the announcement, Nationals made the announcement no to Pukinga without any cost-benefit analysis, without any projections of what it would look like or projections of a deficit. But as I say, right now we do know that none of those business units, as they call them, none of the individual polytechnics are actually uh, in surplus. They're all in deficit. So this is a very difficult financial position to put them in. What would uh, you prefer? Is there a halfway house structure, you know, regional groupings? What would be the preferred option? Look, I think there are some very creative ideas that have come out of staff over the years, including things like shared services. Um, Many of the staff are supportive of a unified curriculum so that you can put your efforts into working collaboratively. We certainly don't need to go back to a model where we have these these public institutions, institutions working for communities, competing for money, competing for learners, competing for attention because that's wasteful and that doesn't deliver for our students and our communities. So, you know, we want the government to think sensibly about this and not to rush it. You know, they've only had their feet under the desk for a few days. They have no plan no information to give us on what might come next and how it will work. They need to slow right down and make sure they don't ruin all of those opportunities that education provides. Thank you, Sandra. Sandra Gray there, National Secretary for the Tertiary Education Union. An assessment expert is warning that the consequences of imposing co-requisite testing and literacy and numeracy to pass NCEA could result in students giving up entirely without completing school. Now, from 2026, students must pass tests in reading, writing and maths before they can receive an NCEA certificate. But Charles Dar is a chief researcher at the New Zealand Council of Education Research. He doesn't think that is a good idea and he joins us now. Uh, kia ora, good morning Charles. Tell me, so why, why is students passing a test in reading, writing and maths? Why is that too onerous? Yeah, Morena Ingrid. Um, the reason it's too onerous is because um, the level it's set at the moment is, is too difficult for many of our learners and um, where we might want our students to be performing at that level, many of them can't and so they're not passing these tests and what that means is they're going to have to um, have multiple goes at it which um, you know sometimes will result in them getting it but is, I think at the same time going to, to make them feel very negatively about the experiences they're having, it's going to disrupt their normal learning and I guess most importantly Importantly, it, it could really endanger them in terms of being able to just complete their normal schooling and, and the strengths-based things they've done through NCA. And so many students won't be able to achieve their NCA because this is required in order to, to get to that end point. Why are the students not well prepared enough that they can pass those tests? Are the tests too difficult? Is the teaching not adequate? Are the students just not good enough? What's gone wrong there? I think it's it's a combination of things. Um, I mean, absolutely in New Zealand, we know that we want to raise those standards. That's every right of every New Zealander to be numerate and literate. But at this point, where we've set um, the difficulty levels um, is, for many students, just too too much, especially in a test kind of situation. So uh, that that brings in another idea, which is that sometimes the test itself can be a really hard thing to overcome. It's high stakes, it's short, there's three of them, um, and you know, you've got to be prepared and ready for it. Um, so yeah, all of those things combine, um, but what it's left with is individual students at the end of their journey when the qualification system is actually defining what they get to do at school, having to cope. And um, 
you know, I, I don't think it's good enough just to uh, to let them fall by the wayside. At that stage, we've got to be giving them a qualification system they can engage in and they can thrive in um, and succeed in. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying there, but you also talk about raising standards. So how do we raise standards while also doing – are you ph- philosophically opposed to testing? Uh, uh, a test bad? I don't think tests are bad at all. I think tests are a, a fantastic toolbox. I've spent the last 20-plus years of my life designing, developing, and doing testing. But I think when we put everything on a test, we bring with it some consequences, and we've got to be really careful that we're ready for those consequences. I absolutely um, believe that we have to do more, and we have to raise our standards in literacy and numeracy. But we've got to also be very careful about thinking where assessment plays its role in that. And a high-stakes, very disruptive test which many students aren't ready for, can be incredibly disruptive. So what's the alternative? Well, I think the alternative is to um, decouple the NCA award itself from a co-equitative. I think students should be able to show literacy and numeracy and get an award in that. Um, And for many students, that will be a great thing that they'll be able to credential themselves in. And we've got to make sure that when we do that, we're true about um, what it means to have that qualification. So there has to be good, robust assessment that leads to it. But at the same time, where they succeed, where they go through pathways that lead them into life and they're succeeding and reaching the standards, we've got to acknowledge that. And that's the great thing about NCA. It gave many more students than ever before the opportunity to find pathways into different uh, ways of of using school to thrive. And and that's what we've got to succeed in. What do you say to parents or to employers who who, who don't trust that system, though? I mean, NCA has been, well, uh, you know, it's constantly being um, tinkered with, uh, to say the very least, that we don't have a concrete thing that we can say, yes, these students can read, write and do maths if we're taking away that that rigorous form of assessment. Yeah, I think... I want them to look at the transcripts that the students are bringing to them so that the students can show um, through those transcripts what they have achieved, what they have reached the standards in. And I am absolutely saying that students should have the chance to make sure that they can show that they've got literacy and numeracy standards as part of that. What I don't want to do is to, um, to, to blot out all the achievements that they have done just because one test might have got in the way. And I'm really worried that these tests... Um, for many students could actually stop them being able to come to an employer and show them what they can actually do. I think that would be more detrimental. Appreciate your time this morning. That is Charles Dar, Chief Researcher at the New Zealand Council of Educational Research, uh, who doesn't think that the uh, co-requisite tests uh, being added on to NCA uh, is a good idea. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 